This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Because we are asked more of ourselves in the workplace and sometimes even outside of our jobs, there's a growing tension amongst many people, and it changes how we perform sometimes with our jobs. Some companies realize this shift and are changing how they view work and their employees to make the workplace a more comfortable location to be and look at how employees feel about the work that they are doing. A new book by Stanford professor Leah Weiss looks at many of these elements and how we can make the workplace a better place while still understanding that companies are asking more of us right now. The book is titled How We Work, Live Your Purpose, Reclaim Your Sanity, and Embrace the Daily Grind. And it's a great uh, pleasure to have Professor Leah Weiss joining us on the show right now. Leah, great to have you with us today. We lost her and we will get her back in just a second. Sometimes we get the gremlins of the phone lines. Now we have Professor Leah Weiss. Leah, great to have you with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you very much. Uh, for, from looking at some of the, uh, the 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 work about this, to a degree, a lot of what you're writing about in this book is stuff that, that you are teaching at Stanford in, in the graduate school there, correct? That's exactly right. What is it about mindfulness these days that has kind of caught the attention of so many people right now, because mindfulness is one of the big things you talk about. And I experienced it firsthand a year ago with my kids who were being taught mindfulness in their elementary school. Yes. Well, I think it's become really one of the critical skills for 21st century leadership in a time where we have so much distraction and so many pulls on our attention. We need to learn to manage how we are focusing, um, which is one of the key elements, not the only one, but that's that's a real um, driver for a lot of people. But what was it that, that really started to turn the nature of the workplace? Because you mentioned at the outset of the book about how some of the old philosophies of running an office, like the annual review and, and various competencies, they are not perceived as important as maybe they were 20, 30, 40 years ago. Yeah, I think that with this crisis and engagement that we're facing now, where only one in three people can actually tell you what their role is at work, and when we face a number like that, that two out of three people don't know what they're doing, so of course they can't be engaged in it. And even if they know what they're doing, they're distracted by um, competing demands, including um, technology that's designed to grab our attention. It becomes vital for us to prioritize um, the way in which we are working, the how we work. And the impact on the company, if you have more and more employees that that don't feel like they understand their job, ends up probably partly being people leaving the, the, the company to go to another to go to another job, which is a whole HR, you know, uh, investment uh, topic uh, that we need to discuss as part of this. But what are some of the other things where the impact really shows up? Absolutely. So I think one of the one of the key things that we're learning now is that people are the technical side of our work is changing so rapidly. So we need to be focused on how we learn how we can get ready for new information. 
And part of that is our ability to um, bounce back when we fail or when we don't understand. And part of that is our ability to collaborate with other people. So when you talk to hiring managers, when you talk to executives, um, there was a study in the Wall Street Journal interviewing about 900 executives, and they said 90% of them said that the soft skills are just as, if not more important than the technical skills and 89% said they're having trouble finding people with these soft skills, with the emotional intelligence to be ready for today's workplace. What's interesting about that is that it's not just uh, people at the manager level that, that are impacting a lot of this. It really goes all the way up the organizational chain, uh, all the way up to the C-suite as well. If you have those people that have kind of bought in and they understand the importance of this, it does filter down to other levels of the organization and obviously to the employees as well. That's exactly right. We just had Jeff Weiner, the CEO of LinkedIn, into my class a couple weeks ago at Stanford, and we were talking with him and uh, about how he's prioritizing hiring and you know what it looks like to develop talent at LinkedIn. And in his mind, skills like compassion were key. They were not nice to have. That's like the main thing that he looks for, that he vets for. So how does he believe that, that having that understanding and, and kind of changing that mindset with LinkedIn has impacted his company and, and to a degree impacted the the quarterly statement and the profit and, and all of that element of it because they are intertwined. Yeah, so I don't want to put words in his mouth, but right. what I would say is, um, you know, if you look at mindfulness in the workplace, it's a $1.1 billion industry, mindfulness, right now. 22% of companies in 2016 had some mindfulness program going on in the workplace, and that number was projected to double in 2017. I don't have the updated statistics because they're still being analyzed. Right. So this tells you, you know, we are in a time where many organizations like LinkedIn, but it's not only a tech Silicon Valley thing anymore. I mean, I do work with organizations in healthcare, in finance, in education, you name it. Um, I think people are really recognizing that this is a key competency now. Well, one of the companies you deal with is Aetna, Health Insurer. Yeah. How does Aetna go about doing this? And really, I guess, what is it that the employees are of Aetna are involved in on a week-to-week or month-to-month basis in terms of mindfulness to, to try and help them understand what Aetna would like to see? Yes. So Aetna is such an interesting company. They've really been ahead of the curve with um, the analytics on the the impact that mindfulness is making in their business. And so what they're finding in their employees, it's an average of $3,000 of increased productivity and an extra a little over an hour a week per employee who have engaged in the mindfulness training. And they are really taking it seriously. They have something called a chief mindfulness officer, and they're really looking at what is the best way to roll out these programs internally um, so that they can continue to leverage this impact. So it's that important for Aetna and and for other companies that they believe they need to have a C-suite officer really running this just like it would be any other segment of the company right now. Absolutely. And I have people making the comparison You know, how many people do you have in the hospital who are focusing on infection control? 
if we see the impact that mindfulness has on safety and on outcomes for patients and in reducing healthcare errors, how can we not start staffing um, and looking at this as a real uh, that, as a real way that we can improve the quality of work that's happening? We are joined by Leah Weiss uh, of Stanford University. We were talking about her new book, How We Work, Live Your Purpose, Reclaim Your Sanity, and Embrace the Daily Grind. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, you can send us a comment via Twitter, and we'll bring it up on the show, at bizradio111, B-I-Z radio 111, or my Twitter account, which is at danloney21. Now, we talk... About mindfulness uh, in this uh, parameter, kind of a, a, as one entity, but you actually take it and break it down into three different elements within mindfulness as well. Correct? Yes, yes. I I found that it's helpful for people to understand. You know, mindfulness research spans such a broad um, number of of ways that it can impact people, from behavior change if you're trying to. Um, you know, quit smoking or eat healthier or may, any new habits. It also is key for emotion regulation, which honestly and somewhat surprisingly to me has been one of the key drivers for the students who, who sign up for my class. They are very interested in how they can learn to be both more authentic leaders where they have confidence in expressing who they are in the workplace, very important to millennials, but also that they're not going to fly off the handle. And many of them have been in the workforce and a lot of them in startup positions or other really demanding roles where they've seen the downsides of emotional suppression and they're very um, motivated to learn how to deal with their emotions more effectively, um, which is consistent with the research of it doesn't just help you with your interpersonal relationships, but it's yeah. actually going to have a long-term health impact. Well, it, it, the embodiment part of it I, I find interesting because, I mean, you're basically talking about understanding our bodies to a degree even better. And with the fact that, that companies – feel like we are more on 24-7, 365, obviously yeah. with the connectivity that we have, it really is more important to understand your body and your limits and, and what you can and can't not, uh, can and cannot do and not overstress yourself at this point. Absolutely. I'm seeing more and more young people with chronic pain. Um, and then you hear stories, you know, like the one of Ariana Huffington of, you know, having this realization through a very physical, um, physically dramatic experience of running herself into the ground. I think people are more aware that if this is not a good long-term strategy and they're looking for organizations, interestingly, that are, you know, gone are the days that people are like, who is the cool ping pong table or even who's got the best food. Right. It's really like who's committed to a compassionate, self-aware workplace because if I'm going to commit to them, I need them to be committed to me. So you're saying, yeah. uh, I'm sorry, finish up. I apologize. No, please. Well, I was going to say, so you were, you were seeing examples in the companies that, that you bring up of situations where an employee, a potential employee is making that decision of where they want to work because of the atmosphere and the mindfulness potentially program that a, that a, that a company may actually have. 
Absolutely. I have students all the time asking me, how can I recognize the companies who are actually committed to it? Because many of them, um, you know, I've been using the term mindfulness washing to sort of follow on the greenwashing, like presenting we're a really mindful company, but it's more about the optics versus the companies who are actually committed to running the day-to-day activities, the teams, the way work is assigned, the compensation, all of that. There's, there are companies that are really looking to do that, like Aetna, um, as a great example. Which is interesting because uh, when you think about, you know, the college experience and a student getting done with their, you know, their four years and, and maybe going on to graduate school, uh, a, a lot of students would be like, you know what, I just want to get out there. I want to get that job. I, I want to get my feet wet and, and then kind of build my career at that point. More and more students are taking all of these elements into account even before they go after those first set of interviews. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what we're seeing is that, um, you know, and this is consistent with the research, that you can get your first job based on your technical competency, but you will get bottlenecked in short order if you don't learn these other skills, because you will be evaluated on your ability to inspire teams, to communicate well with others. You know, these are all the soft skills. So you might get that job but you're not going to perform well there in the long run if you don't have these other competencies. And again, going back to something we touched on, but but part of the reason why is that companies realize the cost to HR when you don't have employees that are able to stay there or want to stay there 10 years, 20 years. I I know there's an element of wanting to continue to build your career, but that's a cost to HR that a lot of these companies believe they can bring down with some of these programs that are better. And part of it also plays into the fact that so many companies want to have projects done by teams. It's not just one person completing a project. It's a team of five, six, 10, whatever it is. And you need to have that relationship between all of those people in order to get these projects done. That's absolutely right. That people there's, you cannot work without interacting with a lot of other people. And I think this is really the direction, you know, the HR and the L and D of bringing in their in-house training. And interestingly, I've been spending more of my time consulting with companies who are trying to really ask this question of what does it look like within our company to put this into all of the meeting culture and physical layout and the way people are spending time um, and, and put it into the in-house training so that it really can be something that is running throughout the organization. We are joined uh, on the phone by uh, Leah Weiss, professor at Stanford University. She's the author of the book, How We Work, Live Your Purpose, Reclaim Your Sanity, and Embrace the Daily Grind. 844-942-7866 is the number to join in with your comments or questions. 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. Even though companies, Leah, want this this perfect world to a degree in their workplace there are times where uh the people that are working together just don't mesh there can be some toxicity to it as well how are companies trying to deal with that identify it and i guess to a degree mitigate it so that you can have as close to a uh, a, a perfect working scenario as possible 
Yeah, I think that um, part of what we're seeing is that there's an increased attention being paid to communication, to candor. But of course, these things need to be balanced with skillfulness, with compassion, um, so that teams are really learning. You know, if we want to look at everybody's familiar, I presume, with the Google studies about the high-performing teams, and it all comes right. down to psychological safety. Well, how do you do that? You do that by understanding what another person's perspective is, what makes them scared, what motivates them, what triggers them. And these are skills that, building off of the mindfulness, they, they support the interpersonal relationships and the authentic relationships. So if we understand each other, we can help support um, moving in the best possible direction for the team because we all sink or swim together. Again, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. I, I think when you when you talk about compassion, I think uh, for the most part in the workplace, employee to employee, uh, especially if there's a working relationship, that, that compassion it can be built in with a lot of situations, but I think where maybe the problems really existed were uh, from the the C-suite on down, the understanding of, of compassion. But everything you lay out here says that from the C-suite on down, they understand that compassion needs to be a part of the overall work perspective. And the thing is, is if it's not, then there's a very practical negative impact that happens if people are not treating each other well. And it's not even just, you know, if I'm working in an organization and I have a sick relative and I'm treated badly, of course that's going to impact my long-term loyalties to the organization. But interestingly, the research also shows us that if you are in the same organization and you're watching me not be cared for, your loyalty is also going to go down. And so I think that there's a logic to this that is just kind of taking back um, what we know to be true of how we all want to be treated. And if we don't want to bear the tremendous cost of continually, not just losing talent, but people are more likely to be, to be absentees. They're more likely to also have presenteeism where they're there, but yeah. they're sort of there. They're not really there mentally. They're loafing or cyber loafing, as we like to call it. But you even mentioned one company uh, that the, the CEO, when there is, uh, is level of conflict within the company, he wants the people involved in that conflict to deal with it directly. Uh, he wants them to sit down and, and talk it out and hash it out, correct? Absolutely. So I write in the book about Decurion, which is an organization actually GSB alumni um, founded. And and I've heard of many other examples of these kinds of processes and organizations that people are saying, if you've got an issue, look, we spend more, we spend 90,000 hours of our life at work. We spend more time with our work colleagues than we do with our families. So we have to not let things fester. And if we do let things faster, this is another context um, kind of piece that, you know, inclivity or workplace rudeness is on the rise. And it leads to all kinds of destructive behavior that costs huge amounts of money where people will, will subterfuge against each other's ideas. They'll bring in expensive consultants so you don't have yeah. to see someone you don't like do well. Um, 
So there's real, real costs. It's not just like, let's all go back to nursery school because it's nice. It's like we have to deal with each other if we want to succeed. The impact of this moving forward in the next 20 or 30 years, hopefully, is what in your mind? You know, I all the time when I'm teaching, I think about I have a seven-year-old, a four-year-old, a three-year-old. I believe that when they enter the workforce, there could be a really different climate now. I think we're not going to have the same issues with Me Too and sexual harassment and, you know, real crises and inclusion um, in the workplaces that manage to be diverse. Um, I think if we can get back to some of these fundamentals, then we are going to be so much better off as not just organizations, but as a world. Great having you with us today, Leah. All the best with the book. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. The book, again, is How We Work, Live Your Purpose, Reclaim Your Sanity, and Embrace the Daily Grind. Uh, grind. Leah Weiss of Stanford University, uh, their graduate school of business, uh, is the author of the book, and it is available now. It is out in bookstores and online for your purchase. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. 